A very blessed Sabbath for you. This is Dubai Central Seventh-day Adventist Church, and it is now time for me to share with you from the Word of God. Um, from whatever you are joining us, I pray the Lord is with you, and I pray that you have been blessed by our service so far. And as we continue now into the study of the Word of God, I pray that you will also be blessed. Today we are doing lesson number 18 in the Amazing Facts Bible Study Guides. It is called Right on Time. And today we are studying the longest prophecy in the Bible, one that predicts the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. So if you are interested in seeing what the Bible says about Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah, um, Please join me for, as we study these prophecies in the Bible. Now, a few weeks ago, we studied in Revelation chapter 14 that there are three angels giving messages. And uh, the first angel says the hour of his judgment has come. We also want to see what is it about this hour of judgment. So I pray that our study today is going to be a blessed one as we go into Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9, how they tell us about this judgment that is to begin and when is the time of that judgment to begin, that hour that the angel talks about. As usual, I want to remind you that you can study these lessons by yourself. If you go to dubaiadventist.org forward slash amazing facts, you can do the lessons yourself. You can also listen to past lessons on Anchor FM, and in this way you can either refresh or you can listen for the first time if you were not with us before. So let's dive right into it. Question number one for today is, what is the first animal Daniel sees and what does this animal symbolize? If you don't have your Bible with you, please go now. It's okay. Yes, now and get your Bible. Remember, the screen is for the lazy. All the verses are going to be here in the screen. But I feel that today's study, it can be a bit complex. So if you don't have your Bible next to you and maybe even pen and paper, it might be hard to keep track. Well, good thing that this thing is, going, is being recorded. So you can come back to it anytime and uh, refresh and rewind and see it over so that you can get it. So let's go there. What is that first animal that appears in Daniel chapter 8? If you read verses 3 and 4, it says, I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but it grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south, no animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. So that is the animal that Daniel is presented in his vision. Now, we don't have to scratch our heads too much because the angel is feeling pretty generous, and he just tells him right away what the animal means. So let's go there. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 20, the angel explains to Daniel and he says, The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. And this should be already familiar to you as well, because we have seen before that the prophecies in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8, they are all parallel. So we begin with Babylon and then uh, Medo-Persia and then Greece and then Rome and then uh, papal Rome, and then the time of the end, and that's it. So here in Daniel 8, the only difference is that we don't begin with Babylon. Why? Because Babylon is history already. So the angel, the vision of Daniel and the explanation of the angel begins already with the time of Medo-Persia because the time of Babylon is up. Question number two for today. What animal did Daniel see next? And what does it represent? So again, if you have your Bible with you, please, we are reading in Daniel chapter 8. Go to verses 5 to 8. The next animal, I was thinking about this. Suddenly, a goat 
with a prominent horn between its eyes, came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in a great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of the heavens." So again, you might be wondering what on earth, way I already know that the goat, that the ram is Media and Persia, but what about this ram now? Well, what about this goat now? The angel again is feeling very generous and he goes straight to the point. In verse 21 and 22, he says, the shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. So here you have it. So you have <clears throat> you have Medo-Persia and then you have Greece and then the angel is telling us that from Greece four kingdoms will come and the great horn was the first king. Now from history you can know that the first king was called Alexander the Great, and uh, his kingdom did not pass to his sons because he didn't have any, and uh, it was rather passed on to his generals, four generals who divided the Greek empire among themselves. So again, in the parallel sequence of Daniel 2, Daniel 7, and Daniel 8, the first thing that we see is Medo-Persia, the ram, and then Greece, the goat. Now, as we keep moving, let's go to question number three. What is the third power introduced in Daniel 8, and what does it represent? Now, before we go to this question, I want you to notice something. The ram and the goat, these are animals that are clean animals. They are animals that can be offered in sacrifice. If you remember when we studied Daniel chapter 7, we had all unclean and ferocious animals, lions, leopards, beasts, little horns and all the rest. But here in Daniel 8, we have more docile creatures, and these are not only docile, but they are related to the sanctuary, related to the sacrifices. So now, what is this third creature or or power that we see depicted in Daniel chapter 8? Let us read together in verses 9 to 12. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Now, this time we are not so lucky, because when the angel explains, he doesn't make it easy-peasy for us, okay, this is the name of that kingdom. But rather, he explains a bit. And so let us go to the explanation of the angel, which is in verses 23 to 25. In the latter part of the reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause the seed to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. So who on earth are we talking here about? Now, the funny thing is that 
Protestant Christians, well, before Protestantism ever existed, many Catholic Christians, before the Reformation happened in history, people belonging to the Catholic Church, they identified the same Catholic Church as this horn power in Daniel chapter 8. Now, if you remember, when we studied Daniel chapter 7, we saw that the little horn who persecutes, who persecutes God's people, who oppresses them for time, times, and half a time, it is pointing to the papal Rome, to the Catholic Church as, as it took over the remains of the Roman Empire. And so that was the traditional opinion of Christians. And then when the Reformation came and you had then Catholic Christians and Reformed Christians, Reformed Christians used to always say, yes, this horn, this horn is Rome. Specifically, um, first the pagan side of Rome that oppressed the Christians and all the rest and killed the prince of the host and uh, set himself against the prince of prince, talking about Jesus. And then... Um, the um, papal Rome that continued to persecute Christians that threw the truth to the ground and many uh, new teachings and, and different doctrines came into the Christian church, like the worship of idols and the prayer to the saints and the belief in the purgatory and all these things, the worship of Mary, so many things that came into the church. So that was the position of the Christians throughout history. But then after the Reformation, if you remember a few weeks ago, we were also saying that the Catholic Church reacted, and that is what is called the Counter-Reformation. And they said, no, 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 all these symbols in the prophecy, they were fulfilled in the past, or they will be fulfilled in the future. So they said that this horn is Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was a Greek king who attacked the people of Israel, for some time, he stopped the um, sacrifices in the temple for a few days. And so they said, this is Antiochus. But, well, the reality is that this prophecy simply does not fit Antiochus. And I don't have the time to tell you all the reasons why it doesn't fit <clears throat> with Antiochus Epiphanes. But I want to highlight only four things. The first thing that I want to highlight is that it says that this horn came out of one of them. You read in verse 9, chapter 8 and verse 9, it says that the horn came out of one of them. Now, this them in the Hebrew language is a masculine them. It's like in Spanish we say ellos and ellas. So ellos is masculine, ellas is feminine. So this them is masculine. Now, in the previous verse, in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 8, you have horns, the horns are feminine, you have winds, the winds are feminine, and you have the heavens. And the heavens is the only thing that is masculine here. So the horn is coming out of one of them. Out of whom? Out of one of the winds of heaven. It's not coming out of one of the horns, because that's where Antiochus came from. Antiochus was a Seleucid king. Um, he was one of the descendants of those four parts that the Greek Empire divided. So it's not a new thing, but Antiochus Epiphanes was part of the Greek kingdom, one of the foreign horns. But this horn is not coming out of one of the previous four horns. This horn is coming one of the winds of heaven. How do we know that? The Greek, the Hebrew language is telling us that. Out of one of them, one of the winds of heaven, came this uh, horn. So it cannot simply be Antiochus Epiphanes. He came out of one of the horns, but that's not what the text is saying. Second, the text is saying that this horn became exceedingly great, and it prospered in everything that it did. Now, if you see the life of Antiochus Epiphanes, he did not become exceedingly great. Yes, he, he was a king, and he conquered Palestine and all the rest, but there is a famous story. One time he was attacking uh, Egypt, and he was causing problems, and so the Roman ambassador came to talk to him, and, and he said, man, you need to stop causing all this mess because you are creating a problem. These are all parts of our influence. And Antiochus said to the uh, Roman ambassador, he said, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll think about it and let you know. 
The ambassador had a staff on his hand, and he walked around Antiochus. He wrote, he made a circle on the sand around Antiochus Epiphanes. And he told him, before you step out of this circle, you need to tell me whether you are withdrawing from Egypt or not. Long story short, Antiochus withdrew from Egypt. He went with the tail between his legs and he went back to the land of Palestine where he had the seat of his government. So Antiochus did not become very great and he did not succeed in everything that he did. So it simply does not match. It also says that this horn is supposed to cast down and to attack the prince of the host and the prince of princes. Antiochus did not do that. It was the Roman Empire who killed Jesus. It was the Roman Empire who attacked the prince of princes. So this is again not fitting with Antiochus Epiphanes. It says that he was also going to cast down the sanctuary. Yes, Antiochus Epiphanes stopped the services in the sanctuary for some time, but he did not destroy the sanctuary. It was the Romans who destroyed the sanctuary in the year 70, when they also destroyed the city of Jerusalem. So again, if we see the progression in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, what comes after the third power, the gold, silver, brass, is iron, a different thing. And then lion, bear, leopard is the beast with ten horns. And then here, after the ram and after the goat, we have a different kind of entity, this little horn that is moving horizontally. Why do I say horizontally? Because it says that he is moving to the south, he is moving to the east, and he is moving to the beautiful land. So he's moving on earth horizontally. But then he moves vertically because he attacks the host of heaven, he attacks the prince of prince, he attacks the prince of the host. So, but this is again parallel to the other things that we see before. So, long story short, this is not Antiochus Epiphanes, this is the Roman Empire. This horn that was small at the beginning and then it grows and does lots of things is talking about the Roman Empire. Same as the legs in Daniel chapter 2, same as the horrible beast in Daniel chapter 7. Let's go to question number 4. How long was this blasphemous power to desecrate God's sanctuary? And what did that mean anyway? So let's continue reading. We're still in Daniel chapter 8, verses 13 to 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary and the Lord's, and the trampling on the food of the Lord's people. He said to me, It will take 2,000 300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. So again, the people that believe that this horn symbolizes Antiochus Epiphanes, they tried to get these 2,300 evenings and mornings, and they said, okay, so an evening and a morning, so this is sort of half of the day, so 2,600 evenings and mornings equals six years and a little bit, and let me see how that fits with the life of Antiochus Epiphanes. And guess what? It doesn't. You go to the books of history, and it simply does not match. The time that Antiochus Epiphanes was uh, canceling the worship in the temple in Jerusalem, and he was oppressing the priests, and he was um, making it illegal for people to read the Torah and all the rest, it did not last for six years and a little bit. It doesn't match. So anyway, we need, we need to keep moving. So um, the angel also says, talking about this, um, talking about this, how long the, the desecration is going to last, in Daniel chapter 8, verses 26 and 27, while explaining, he says, the vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true. But seal up the vision for it concerned the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. So he gets a vision 
the temple of God is cast down and oppressed for 2,300 evenings and morning. Only after that time, the temple is going to be cleansed or vindicated. And Daniel says, I simply don't get this thing. The angel tells him, the vision is true, but it's sealed. Okay, so great. So what do I do? Well, at least we have, again, the progression that we have seen in Daniel chapter 2, in Daniel chapter 7, in Daniel chapter 8. If this progression holds true, then this purification of the sanctuary in Daniel chapter 8 should be somehow similar to the stone in Daniel chapter 2, should be somehow similar to the judgment scene in Daniel chapter 7. So as we continue moving, let's see if that is the case or not. Question number five. What urgent point did the angel Gabriel repeatedly stress as he talked to Daniel? So let's have a look. The angel repeats the same point three times. Have a look at this. Chapter 8, verse 17. He came near the place where I was standing. I was terrified and fell prostrate, son of man. He said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. Then in verse 19, he said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. Verse 26, the vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. So what do you think the, the angel was trying to communicate to Daniel? This 2,300 uh, days, evenings and mornings that the sanctuary was going to be desecrated and all the rest, was it going to be only a period of six years and a little bit? Well, no, because the angel is repeatedly saying, this is about the time of the end. This is about the last days. This is about very distant future. And the angel is trying to tell us that time and time and time again. So again, my friend, if you are a Christian and in your church, they have been teaching you that this little horn has to do with Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did in the year 164 before Christ, you're wrong. I'm, I'm sorry to, to put it bluntly like that, but it just does not add up. The angel is very specific in what he's saying, the vision is very specific in what he's saying. So the horn in Daniel chapter 8, it is not Antiochus Epiphanes. It's referring to Rome, both in the pagan phase of Rome and then the papal phase of Rome. Question number six. Did God leave Daniel in the dark about the vision? Remember, when the vision finishes, Daniel doesn't understand a thing. But God had already given an order. If you read in verses 15 and 16, it says, While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. So God clearly wants Daniel to understand and then in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 22 and 23, we read again, He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you. For you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So in Daniel chapter 8, God tells the angel Gabriel, explain this guy the vision. At the end of chapter 8, Daniel is saying, I do not understand the vision. And then in chapter 9, the angel comes back and he says, Daniel, I want you to understand the vision. I hope you are getting uh, what God is trying to show us here. There is a vision that needs to be understood, and that is what the angel is trying to explain. But to make it even clearer, what is the connection between the 70 weeks in chapter 9 of Daniel and the 2,300 days of chapter 8. Are these two visions connected at all? Now, I want you to forgive me, but I need to show you some Hebrew now. Because, you know, we read our Bible in English or Spanish or whatever language it is that you read. And that is great. But sometimes the translation hides some of the details that the text in the original language 
gives. So if you have your Bible with you, you might even want to make a note next to your Bible. We have the word vision used many times. But behind the word vision in English, we have two separate Hebrew words. In Daniel chapter 8 and verse 15, um, Daniel says, I was trying to understand the vision. And the word that he uses that for vision is hason. But then in verse 16, God commands an angel and he tells him, tell this guy the meaning of the vision. But the word that God uses for vision is mar'eh. And then in verse 17, Daniel, the angel says, Daniel, you need to understand the vision. The chason is for the time of the end. But then God again in Daniel 8 verse 26, through the angel, God says the vision, the mar'eh, of the evenings and the mornings is true. But close the vision, close the chason, for it is for the distant future. Then in verse 27, Daniel says, I could not understand the mar'eh. The vision in our Bibles. And then in Daniel 9 verse 23, the angel comes and he tells him, Daniel, I have come so that you can understand the mar'eh. So what is this mar'eh? What is this vision that Daniel is supposed to understand? That God wants us to understand Daniel chap- chapter 8 verse 16, tell him the meaning of the vision. Well, that is explained in verse 26. The vision, the mar'eh, of the evenings and mornings is True. So the word hason means vision, but in general, the mar'e has to do with the root ra'a to see. So it looks like the, the mar'e that is derived from the word ra'a to see is something more narrow. So the hason seems to be the larger vision, and the mar'e seems to be the more focused vision. And the focus part that God wants Daniel to understand is the 2,300 evenings and mornings, as it is written in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 26. The vision, the mar'e, of the evenings and mornings is true, and that is what the angel comes to explain to Daniel in chapter 9 and verse 23. He tells him, understand the vision. I hope that is clear. I cannot make it any clearer than that. In our Bibles, in English or Spanish, it doesn't come through, but when you look at the Hebrew language, it is very clear that the explanation that comes in Daniel chapter 9 about the 70 weeks is in direct connection to the 2,300 evenings and mornings. If you got it, amen. If you didn't get it, after the service is finished, go back and watch the video again to see if you can get it. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, then the angel continues, 70 weeks are decreed for your people and for your holy city, to finish transgression. So that was the point of the 70 weeks. It was for God's people. And it says that these 70 weeks are decreed. Now, the word that is used there in the Hebrew language for decreed is the word hatah. And that word literally means to cut off. Now, how can you cut off? You need something bigger to cut off. So the bigger thing is the 2,300 evenings and mornings. From that bigger period, the 70 weeks are now cut off. That's what the angel came to explain to Daniel. Now, let's keep moving. Question number eight. What was the purpose of these 70 weeks? So let's keep reading. Let's, let's actually go back to 924. Because here it says that these 77s or these 70 weeks are decreed, are cut off from something bigger to your people. So this is a time period that is specifically for Jewish people, for your people, and also for your city, for your holy city, for Jerusalem. What is supposed to happen in this time? Finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for wickedness bringing everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, that's a very ambitious prophecy. And when it talks about seal up vision and prophecy, it's not the same word that is used in chapter 8, verse 26, when the angel says, seal the vision. The word there means close the vision, lock the vision. But the word that is used here is a different word, is the word for, for seal, for authenticate the vision. So what the 70 weeks is going to do is to authenticate 
both the interpretation of the 70 weeks, but also the bigger prophecy, the 2300 evenings and mornings prophecy, because it will seal the prophecy and also the prophet, the vision. So let's keep moving. So the Bible talks about 70 weeks. All right, so let's begin to make some numbers here. You can either take these numbers literally, okay, so 70 weeks, this is 70 times 7, this is 490 days. What on earth am I supposed to do with this number, Lord? These 490 days, if I take it literally, if these are normal days, it will be, well, maybe 1.3 years, literal years. But if I take this number symbolically, like a prophecy, one day meaning one year, so I end up with 490 years. So the angel is saying that there are 70 weeks decreed for God's people and for the holy city. This means there are either 1.3 years decreed for God's people and the holy city, or there are 490 years decreed for God's city and the holy people. What does it mean? Well, we are going to keep moving and we will figure it out what it means. Question number eight. What event was to mark the starting point of the 2300 days and the 70 week prophecies? Again, remember, the angel came to explain the 2,300 evenings and mornings, the Mar'e. That's what he came to explain in Daniel 9. So, and Daniel 9, the 70 weeks are hata, are cut off from the bigger period. So, when we see the starting point of the 70 weeks, that's also the starting point of the 2,300 days. The starting point appears in Daniel 9, verse 25. Know, therefore, understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. All right, so here we have the beginning point. It says that there is going to be a command to rebuild and to restore Jerusalem. As you look in your Bibles, you find four such commands. There is a command in Ezra chapter 1. It was given by Cyrus in the year 537. It was to restore the temple. Nothing happened. So Darius, who was the next king, gives another command in the year 520, again to restore the temple. And then the king Artaxerxes in the year 457 before Christ gives another decree, now this time to restore both the temple and the city. And then Nehemiah records another decree by Artaxerxes in the 446 to now rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. But remember, the angel said from the time that the order is issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So the decree that concerns us is a decree that we find in Ezra chapter 7 that was given in the year 457 because that was the decree that was actually to restore the temple and the city. So here we have the starting point for the 70 weeks. Here we have the starting point for the 2,300 evenings and mornings. Question number nine. The angel said that 69 weeks after the beginning of the 70 weeks, so in the, in the time of the 79th weeks, would reach to the time of the Messiah. Now the question is, did it? Did it happen? Did those 70 weeks reach from the time of the decree till the time of the Messiah? Daniel 9 verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. Until who? Did you read it? Until who? Until Messiah the Prince there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So the prophecy is telling us from the time there is this decree to rebuild and restore the, um, the temple and Jerusalem, there's going to be first seven weeks and there is going to be also 62 weeks. Okay, very good. How on earth do we understand that? Well, again, it depends if you want to take it literally or if you want to take it symbolically. 
After seven weeks and 62 weeks, the city would be built and the Messiah would come. So seven weeks equals 49 days. How do you, under, how do you understand those 49 days? Well, it could be 1.6 months, more or less, or it could be 49 years if you take the days to be prophetic in, in nature. And then the 62 weeks, <clears throat> this is equal to 434 days. Now, if these are literal days, this is roughly over one year. Or this is 434 years. So how is it? Well, the only way to find out is to go to history and see what happened after those times. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is what happened seven weeks If, if we take the time literally, a month and a half over, uh, after the year 457? And the answer is mm, nothing much. But then what happened seven weeks? Now, if these weeks are weeks of years, then it's 49 years after 457. Well, then we get to the year 408, and history tells us that by the year 408, the temple has been rebuilt already, and Jerusalem has also been rebuilt already. So if we take the time to be symbolic, meaning one year equals one day equals one year, then the prophecy makes sense and things begin to match. But remember that the prophecy said that it was going to take seven weeks and 62 weeks. So again, what happened seven weeks If we take it literally, 1.6 months and 62 weeks, 1.2 years, this would make a total of 1.4 years after the year 457. The answer is nothing much. A, re a year and a half after 467, history tells us absolutely nothing. But if we take this time to be one day equaling one year, so what happened seven weeks, meaning 49 years? And 62 weeks, meaning 434 years, so a total of 483 years after the year 457, when the decree was issued. Well, that takes us to the year 27. Now, if you are completely and absolutely lost, I want to do this thing with you on the calculator. Um... Let me see. I want to put a calculator here on the screen, but I don't want it to be so big. Let me see. I hope that you will be able to see this thing. So the seven weeks, one week, hey, what happened? Yes, seven um, times seven, because this is seven weeks, so this is 49 days, but then we're talking about prophetic time, so it's 49 years, and then we have 62, 62 weeks, and this is 434, but this after the seven weeks and the 62 weeks, so to this one we need to add the previous seven weeks, so plus 49, we have 483. Now the decree came out in the year 457 before Christ. So this is a minus. This is before Christ. So what happened 483 years after that? Oh, you get to the number 26. And you are saying, Pastor, you are a liar. You wrote here 27. But the calculator is showing me 26. Well, my friend, remember, when you're going from negative numbers to positive numbers, you have minus 3, minus 2, minus 1, 0, 1, 2, 3. But in the calendar, you come from the year 3 before Christ, year 2 before Christ, year 1 before Christ, year 1 after Christ, year 2 after Christ. There is no year 0. So even though the calculator is showing us 26 here, we need to add 1 because in the calculator you have the year 0. While you go from negative numbers to positive numbers, where in the calendar there is no year zero. Nobody was born in the year zero. He was the year before Christ and then the year after Christ. All right, so I hope that helped a little bit. 
Let's go to question number 10. What happens in the last week of these 70 weeks? We have already talked about seven weeks and 62 weeks. This gives a total of 69 weeks, but the angel is talking about 70. So what happens in that last week? Let us read. Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, if this is the first time that you're reading these verses, I do not expect you to understand and to grasp immediately what you're reading about. So that's why I'm trying to make it as bite-sized as I possibly can. So to summarize what we just read there, it says that after the 62 weeks, after the seven weeks plus 62 weeks, so after 69 weeks, the Messiah would be cut off. But he is not cut off for himself. He is cut off for the benefit of others. And the city and the sanctuary are going to be destroyed. And then it says that for one week, the Messiah is confirming a covenant with many. It says that in the middle of the week, the Messiah ends the sacrifice and offering. And it says that on the wings of abomination comes one who desolates. Now, this last item is not related to time. It doesn't say one week, half week, this time, that time. It just says that it comes suddenly on the wings of abomination. So, one thing to remember is that Jesus spoke about this abomination. And he said that that abomination was still in the future. So, if you are still not convinced that Antiochus Epiphanes is not this little horn, which is doing all these things... Please listen to your Lord Jesus Christ. He says the abomination that causes desolation is in the future. When he spoke, he said that is still to come. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, flee. He said that in Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 to 16. So this is not Antiochus Epiphanes. Please get it out of your mind and start looking for other explanations. So, 69 weeks after the year 457, when the decree was issued. Where does that take us? If you take it literally, well, it's about 1.4 years after 457. That means the year 455, more or less. Or if you take the time symbolically, this means 483 years after 457. And then you get to the year 27 of the Lord. And that's the calculation that we just did previously. So, okay, so let's see what happened. What happened after 455? Again, the answer is nothing much. What happened after the year 27 of the Lord? Well, Jesus was cut off. After the year 27, in the year 31st, Jesus was cut off. He was killed, but he was not killed for himself. He was killed for the benefit of others. And also Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in the year 70. So after the 69-week, Messiah is cut off and the city is destroyed exactly as the prophecy said. So again, if we take the time symbolically, the prophecy matches exactly what happened in history. But then the prophecy also says that in that last week, some things will happen. Now, this one week, if it means either seven literal days or it means seven years. So, seven days after the year 455 or seven years after the year 27, meaning up to the year 34. So, let's see, where do we get here? What happened in the seven days after 455? History tells us absolutely nothing. But what happened in the seven years 
after the year 27 AD. What happened in that week of years? Well, several amazing things happened. The first thing that happened is that Jesus ministered to the Jewish nation for three and a half years. The ministry of Jesus spanned a time of three and a half years. He was baptized in the year 27. And for three years and a half, he taught, he healed, he preached. And then in the middle of the week, in the year 31st, he was cut off. And he gave himself as the Lamb of God. And in that way, he put an end to sacrifice and to offering. And that's what the prophecy said that it was going to happen. In the middle of the week, Messiah was going to be cut off and there would be no more sacrifice, no more offering. Why? Because the true offering of God, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed. Remember that when Jesus died, the gospel says that the veil of the temple was rent. It was broken. It is useless anymore. This thing has no function, no purpose. There is no more sacrifice. There is no more offering. But then Jesus continued his ministry to the Jewish nation for three and a half years. Because yes, he died. Yes, he resurrected. Yes, he went to the heavens. But he did not abandon his church. If you see the book of Acts, Jesus is busy all the time, guiding people, talking to people. And uh, so you see that through Jesus himself, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of the apostles, the Lord Jesus was still confirming a covenant with many. Because that's what the prophecy said. The prophecy said that Messiah was going to confirm a uh, a covenant for one week. So if you had not noticed before, This prophecy is actually foretelling the death and the resurrection of Messiah. Because even though Messiah is killed in the middle of the week, he still keeps a covenant for the whole week. So the prophecy implies that Messiah is not going to be continually cut off. Something happens to Messiah. Messiah lives again and he continues the covenant for the rest of the week. And that is exactly what happened. And then in the year 34, at the end of that seven-year period, two amazing things happened. The first thing is that Stephen was killed. He was one of the seven deacons. Now, when he was killed, persecution broke out. And so the Christians began to preach everywhere to the pagans and to everybody. And that's what the prophecy said. There are 70 weeks decreed for your people. So when those 70 weeks are finished, now the gospel goes to all the world. And also what happened in the year 34? Jesus Christ himself appeared to Paul and he sends him to preach to the Gentiles. So again, Jesus keeps a covenant for seven years, for one week with his people. But at the end of that week, it's done. The prophecy was there is 70 weeks determined for your people. When that 70 weeks is done, then the time is done. So here's a little summary. You have the seven weeks, the 62 weeks, the one week. We are beginning in the year 457 and we are going all the way to the year 34 after Christ. This is the 70 weeks or the 490 years, literal years that were predestined, allotted for God's people. Now, this is such an amazing prophecy. Daniel is writing more than 500 years before Jesus, and he is predicting to the dot when Messiah is going to appear, when Messiah is going to be anointed, 27, when Messiah is going to be cut off, 31, in the middle of the week, and when the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles, year 34, after Christ. Um, when the 490 years are finished. So this prophecy is just amazing. Question number 11. When the 70 weeks, these 490 years of final opportunity for the Jewish people ended in the year 34 AD, what did the disciples do? Now here we can see that many times one thing is what the Lord wants and slightly different thing is what his people pick up and do. Because in Acts chapter 1, chapter 8, verses 1 and 4, we read, Saul approved of their killing him. This is when they are killing Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. 
According to God's timeline, when the 70 weeks were finished, the gospel was to go to the whole world. But the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Maybe this time they felt, well, the first time we were hiding, cowardly. Now we are not going to do that. But they still stayed in Jerusalem. The rest of the people, they were scattered. They began to preach. They stayed. Um, In the book of Acts, chapter 10 and verse 28, this is the vision of Cornelius and how Peter is involved. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone unpure or unclean. The apostles were quite happy to stay in Jerusalem, but God had to send a persecution to drive them out so that they could preach in other parts. And God who had to send a vision and an angel to show Peter, boy, it's time to begin preaching to the Gentiles. It's time for the gospel to go to the whole world. That was God's timeline, and God made it happen. Question number 12. Why do some Bible interpreters detach the last week of the 70 weeks allotted to the Jewish nation and apply it to the Antichrist work at the end of Earth's history? Maybe you have heard or you have watched or you have read the books or magazines, movies about the rapture. The secret rapture, there is one week at the end of time and the Antichrist will come and then Armageddon happens and then people are raptured and taken into heaven. If they are wearing a pan, the pan falls to the ground and they are taken and if they are flying an airplane, the airplane crashes because the pilot is gone. He has been raptured. My friend, the Bible doesn't talk about a secret rapture at all. The coming of the Lord is with the voice of the archangel. The coming of the Lord, the elements melt. The coming of the Lord is like a lightning that goes from one side of the heaven to the other. The coming of the Lord is with an earthquake. There is nothing secret about the rapture. So I really don't know why people do that with that prophecy. It's such a beautiful prophecy. It predicts the coming of Christ, his baptism his death, and then the preaching of the gospel to all of us Gentiles. But people take it, they, they uh, piece it apart from the 70 weeks and throw it into the, into the far future. Why? I have no idea why. The only reason I can think why is what is written in Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers. To say what their itching ears want to hear, they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myth. For most of the history of the Christian church, Christians understood that the little horn was the papal system, both in Daniel chapter 7 And in chapter 8, it was not this fellow Antiochus Epiphanes. And this 70 week was not cast out there in the future. Those theories were introduced in the counter-reformation. So the preterists threw things back. It was done, Antiochus. You don't need to look at history. And the futurists threw it to the future. No, the 70th week is in the future. You don't have to look at history. But if you pay attention to your Bible... And you pay attention to the way the angel himself and God through the angel is explaining the prophecy. There is no reason whatsoever to chop up this prophecy. Furthermore, these 70 weeks have been cut off from the 2300 evenings and mornings. So you cannot chop it off because it is part of this longer period. All right. Question number 13. After the 70 weeks... How much of the 2,300 days remained? What is the ending date for the prophecy? Now we want to remember what the angel had said. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And then in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, 77s are decreed, are cut off, are separated for your people. So we have a longer period, we have a longer period of 2,300 days, and we have a shorter period of 70 weeks or 490 years, 
taken out from that longer period. And we have seen that the 490 years began in the year 457 when the decree was issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. It went all the way to the year 34. And then if we subtract this 490 from the 2300, we go all the way to 1844. Now, remember that the 70 weeks, one of the functions of the prophecy was to seal the prophecy, was to seal the vision, was to show you that it was true. So if you see that everything happened to the dots in the 70 weeks, the larger prophecy, the 2,300 years, also was fulfilled. Many people see, well, but... Before, it is easy to see in history whether things happened or not. But how can we know what actually happened in the year 844? Nothing much seemed to happen. Nothing much seemed to happen? My friend, please go to books, go to the internet, read about the Great Awakening. Um, this was an amazing time of spiritual awakening all over the world. People in Europe began to preach, God is coming, the end of the world is coming in the Americas, North America, and South America, in Asia, in Africa, all over the world. The time surrounding 1844 was a time of spiritual awakening around the world like no other. Please go and read about it so that you can, you can see for yourself what I'm talking about. Question number 13. All right, so let's try to wrap things up. What all this thing, what does it mean for the sanctuary to be cleansed? We go back to Daniel chapter 4 and verse 18. He said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And we have established that these 2,300 days begun before Christ, 457, and they finish after Christ in the year 800, um, 1844. But then what is actually happening there? Well, the problem is that the word that is used for cleansed is not appeared, is not used in that way any other time in the Bible. It's a nifal, this nisdak. Um, let me highlight it for you. How can I do that? This one, Nisdak, um, is from the root Sadak. The root Sadak means to justify, to declare righteous, to make clean, to put right. Uh, but then with the Nifal form, it doesn't appear anywhere else in the Bible. So interpreters have a hard time. What does it mean? that it shall be cleansed when that word is not used in any other part of the Bible. What are we talking about? The other thing is that the word for sanctuary, well, is Kodesh. It simply means holy. Then the holy shall be cleansed. What are we talking about? Well, Hebrew language to the rescue. Um, there is a place where this word is used again. And uh, is in the book of Job, chapter 4, verse 17. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can even a strong man be more pure than his maker? And here we can see that word, um, sadak, is not in the nifal form, but it is in parallel to the word taher. Now, if you paid attention, you noticed that on Daniel 8 and verse 14, Oh, where is my mouse? You notice that on Daniel 8 and verse 14, the New King James, for example, translate, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And that is what taher actually means. So maybe the commentators already picked up on the relationship between to declare righteous, tzadak, and to cleanse. Now, the issue is that these two words, to tzadak, to declare righteous, and sanctuary, Kodesh, they don't appear together. But the other phrase, this phrase, um, the word Taher, it does appear with the sanctuary. And finally, we are landing this plane. We are coming to the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verses, uh, chapter 16, verses 19 to 20. The word Sadak is not used, like in Daniel, but the word Taher is used, which is synonymous. 
He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse the hair, to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, now this Bible translates most holy place, but in the Hebrew it only has the word Kodesh, the holy, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. So here we find those words, um, cleansing and sanctuary or the holy place combined. Nowhere else in the Bible. So we have a connection between what is happening on the Day of Atonement on Leviticus 16 and what the prophecy is telling us is going to happen in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14, the cleansing of the sanctuary, the declaring rights of the sanctuary. The word is used one more time, these two words together. Same chapter 16 of Leviticus, verses 30 and 33. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse Taher, you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean, Taher, from all your sins. It is a day of Sabbath rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and make atonement for the most holy place. Again, this most holy place is the way it is translated, but in Hebrew it only says Kodesh, for the tent of meeting and the altar and for the impurities and for all the members of the community. So on the day of atonement in the Old Testament, the sanctuary was cleansed. The people were cleansed. The camp was symbolically cleansed from sin. So on that day, you were either completely with God or you were completely away from God. It was like a miniature judgment day, final judgment in, in a symbolic way. Remember, a few weeks ago, we studied how the sanctuary system was like a picture of what God wanted to do. And so in the Day of Atonement, we have a picture, we have a symbolic picture of the last judgment. All the sins that have been confessed, they are forgiven, they are cleansed, there is no more record of sins. And notice that it says that after atonement is done, then the live goat comes. And this live goat just uh, purges the sins. He's not atoning for sin, but he's just taking the sins away from the camp of God people. So God's people are completely cleansed from their sins. And I love the word that the Bible uses, atonement. Atonement. At one meant atonement. To make one. Why? Because the devil created division. We read many, many, many weeks ago how there was a battle in heaven and, and Satan rebelled against God. And then that battle moved to earth. But then Jesus came to earth to seek and to save the lost. He came to earth to make atonement. He came to earth as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But not only as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is also our priest. And two weeks ago, we talked about that. And I want to read with you again this um, verse. This is Hebrews chapter 9. Is not verse 28 only. I made a mistake here. I believe this is verse 25 and 26 and then verse 28. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. The copies of things here on earth, the sanctuary on earth. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than this. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. No, no, no. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So this is the big 
picture that God was trying to paint with that prophecy about 2,300 evenings and mornings. The sanctuary that was to be cleansed is obviously not the sanctuary on earth. The sanctuary on earth was destroyed in the year 70 after Christ. So when Jesus came the first time, he was the lamb and he fulfilled the the things that happened in the courtyard, you remember? There was an altar of sacrifice. There was a basin. Jesus did that when he came the first time. When he ascended to the heavens, now he begins to intercede for us. And he began to do what happened in the holy place. The bread, the light, the incense. That is what Jesus was doing for us. And then after the year 144, Jesus began to do what happened in the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. So from the year 1844 until now, the Lord has been doing a work of cleansing of sin. And the Bible is telling us here in the book of Hebrews, he says that once that work of cleansing is done, Not that the high priest that they used to go year after year. No, this is something that Jesus will do only once. Once that is done, he will come back not to have anything to do with sin. Because after the high priest came out from the the most holy place, there was no atonement left to be made. The goat that was left was alive. And that goat was sent into the desert just to die and to perish for himself and for his own sins. He was not making any atonement. So when Jesus leaves the heavens, and he returns to this earth, atonement is finished. Judgment is finished. The plan of God is finished. There is no more sin. There is no more sinners. The process has been carried out. So I hope that you have been um, enlightened and blessed by this study we have had today. So as you can see, it turns out that the purification of the sanctuary in Daniel chapter 8 is parallel to the judgment in Daniel chapter 7 and is parallel to the stone in Daniel chapter 2. They are all talking about the same thing from different angles, but it's talking about the same thing. So my very last question for you today is Jesus' atoning sacrifice was made for you. Will you invite him into your life to cleanse you from sin and to make you a new person? Today we have studied the longest prophecy in the Bible. And today I have given maybe the longest sermon in a very, very long time. But what to do? It's a very long prophecy. But the point is that from very long ago, It was predicted Messiah was going to come. It was predicted Messiah was going to die. It was predicted Messiah was going to live again because he was going to continue making a covenant for the whole week. It was predicted that the sanctuary was going to be cleansed. So Messiah is also doing that work. Would you believe in him? Would you accept him? Would you give him your life? I pray and I hope that you do so. The next, um, the next time that we get together, we are going to talk about this final judgment. And I want to invite you again. You can study for yourself and in our website, and you can listen to previous studies on Anchor FM. And I pray and I hope that you have been blessed today.